The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 22, 30, 23, 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you for that reading of scripture. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Uh, my name is Paul Lim, and I serve here at Christ Pres as Scotland Residence, which means that occasionally I'll preach here. Um, my uh, other position, my day job, is just across the street at Vanderbilt. I've been there for 17 years as a professor in the area of history of Christianity. So between uh, my position at Christ Pres, where I'm too liberal, and my position at Vanderbilt, where I'm too conservative, I don't know what that means anymore. Uh, I just know that I love Jesus, and more importantly, Jesus loves me, uh, who is neither conservative nor uh, liberal, maybe both and, rather than either, neither nor. So uh, with that in mind, let's pray together to the Lord of the Word, who transcends the political barriers and ideological constraints. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the giving of the Word. We thank you for this very, very tumultuous passage. Uh, find our, may we find our repose in you as we look to you for the inspiration and encouragement and edification from this text of scripture. May you receive all glory, honor, and praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would Jesus play pickleball? Yes or no? No answer? Okay. Well, if yes, what would Jesus do after playing pickleball? Maybe get all the water from his fellow pickleballers and turn that into wine? Who knows what he will do? As silly as this initial question might be, it actually arose from me as I was sitting at Jasper's yesterday afternoon with a college friend of mine whose daughter is a student at Vanderbilt. I understand that this is family weekend, 
I'm on sabbatical from Vanderbilt this semester, so I didn't know until he texted me and said, hey, Lim, I'm in town for family weekend. Let's get together. And he was regaling of how he played for three hours of pickleball at Centennial Park uh, before we met. And he lives in Seattle, Washington, and he said, Lim, people don't go to church anymore, and pickleball has taken over. I said, surely you're kidding. That's not true. And he says, pickleball as is in fact, the fastest growing sport in America. I googled that and it turns out that may be the case. Before I subscribe to my friend's newfound religious zeal for pickleball, I have to acknowledge that sports in general, uh, in America that is at least, whether the NFL or NBA or uh, MLB or MLS or now pickleball in particular, have become our new, uh, our new religion for some people, including those within the church. When I talk with, because of my position at work at Vanderbilt, I often find myself talking with people who, are, who have never been Christians or are no longer Christians. And so I ask them about why they're no longer that or why they're, what, what they find problematic about religion in general or Christianity in particular. I often hear three things. One is the intolerance of Christianity. Two is irrelevance of Christianity. Three is violence caused by Christianity. I won't have the time to get into the details of this, although I plan to write about this someday in my scholarly journey. But today I do want to talk about the third thing that shows up, violence, because we find that right in our text. But we're also deeply aware of the, the, the prevalence of violence throughout our world right now, your world and my world are also involved in this violence going on in Israel and Gaza Strip. A, 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 a war, a major battle uh, with the provocation from the Hamas and uh, retaliation from the Israeli military, and we don't know when it's going to end, which has caused much grief, consternation, and both those things serve as a desperate reminder for the advent of the true king of all, who will ultimately bring all nations, tribes, and tongues under his merciful and gracious rule. But today, it is not shalom, but something else, internally, externally, individually, and cosmically, and communally. In this narrative that we have just read, we definitely have one element of the foregoing three, and even possibly two, and that is definitely violence, possibly intolerance, so we hear in this text, Paul, the apostle, lives to, lives to see another day in this actually very exciting text. I don't know whether you're following, following along the text, but there are lots of, there are elements that are actually fairly hilarious. There are elements that are really eye-opening. There are elements that are really kind of causing us to ask questions about divine involvement, human affairs, and all of these things. I think many, if not most people I preach in front of, basically turn off the biblical text after they say, thanks be to Christ. And we don't want to do that today. I want you to actually kind of go back to your text, open your phones or actual Bibles, and want us to kind of think together as we go through this passage together. And more than anything else, I would love for all of us to be participant readers. Participant reader meaning that even though we cannot transport ourselves to first century Jerusalem, but to the extent that it is possible, I want you to really kind of think along and follow along as to what the readers, what the participants were experiencing. Participants are the members of the Sanhedrin 
and then Paul the apostle and the commander of the Roman army and the soldiers, and lastly but not least, Jesus the Lord. Um, here, the story that we find um, in Acts chapter 23, as intriguing, as weird as it may seem to many of us, it actually provides a key for the Christian journey of life. Um, as it is family weekend, at least for this one school here in Nashville, Vanderbilt, I was reminded of the fact that, you know, we have, uh, my wife and I have one child, and he has just started his life away from home as a first-year student uh, in, in Palo Alto, California. So we took him out there, and that, this sermon that I'm preaching in front of you all here is as much for you as it is for him, because we all need to learn uh, the art the art and wisdom of negotiating different boundaries and crevices and challenging circumstances, some of which might involve situations of potential or actual violence, rhetorical, literal. And we see that in today's text. Um, today is a, uh, I was hoping that today would be a beautiful autumn day because I, I actually written on my you know, sermon manuscript saying that I just have two points today so that you can enjoy a beautiful fall afternoon as you earn one sermon point this morning. Well, I will have two points of the sermon. I cannot do anything about the weather, so you can do whatever you like. But I normally have three points, but today we just have two. So you have shortened service, I think. Okay, so there are two points. First point is divide and conquer. Second point is unite and be loved. Divide and conquer. So this text, I'm telling you, is very, very interesting because... Paul shows himself to be a very, very cheeky kind of guy. And you'll know what I mean. And the first point is divide and conquer. Let's see how Paul does it here, all right? So where is Paul right now? He is where? He is uh, um, before the Sanhedrin, right? Which is the religious kind of assembly of all the leaders. So it'll be similar to something like a Presbytery meeting. No, in fact, it'll be like the general assembly of the Presbyterian church, right? Or like, you know, um, Anglican, um, it is called the, um, there is a, a, a semi, you know, this meeting of the global Anglican leaders will gather together and they have this kind of conference, right? A very similar Lambeth conference, it is called. So it is a big gathering, and Paul the Apostle is there because he's now being summoned so that they can figure out, they can suss out whether this guy is legit or not. Remember, this is before the advent of social media, before the advent of the movable type. That means they're very limited in their understanding of who this person is in terms of, but they've heard about him through word of mouth. And so there is Paul right there. And then there's also this very interesting group. And, let's, and you might have seen that he gets what? Punch in the mouth, right? And then he talks back, talks, Paul's being sassy and tells him like, you know, how dare you punch me, your whitewashed wall, and all that back and forth. And I was going to have the first point about being punched in the mouth, but I will not. But I'll just tell you that he gets punched in the mouth, and he talks back, and there's a little kind of back and forth happening. First point here shows up in verses 6 through 10, and that is divide and conquer, or remember your end game. Let's take a look. So verse 6 by verse 6, so verses 1 and 5 describe for us the exchange between Paul and the high priest Ananias and his kind of uh, uh, right-hand person, right? And then, by then, I think Paul came to realize that this, isn't, this shouldn't be his end game. 
Like he's before the San Sanhedrin, but that's not where he wanted to end his life. So he thinks about this, and he comes up with it. He pivots and comes up with a very, very, I think, clever strategy of dividing and conquering. And let, let me show you what I mean. Verse 6, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee and a son of Pharisee. Let's stop right there, okay? Paul knows his demographic really well. And one of the things that we as 21st century, um, assuming most of your Christians, Christians are thinking about is how to kind of mind the gap, right? Mind the gap is a lesson I've learned. Perhaps the most important lesson I've ever learned in life was as I was standing in front of this London tube station and they tell you mind the gap. There is a gap that exists between my confession of self and my confession and then my actual practice, my confession of belief. I believe in God and blah, blah, blah. And then yet I act as if God doesn't exist. I confess that Christ is all I need and yet I act as if Christ is not all I need. So minding that gap is super important. So minding, and that's what this whole thing is, this worship and the liturgy of worship is to remind us that a gap exists and also remind us that gap has been filled by someone other than yourselves. When we come to the Eucharist, when we come to the Lord's table, this is an edible and drinkable reminder that someone else has stood in your place filling that gap for us. So Paul knows that in that intersection of his life journey, he knows that this is not where he wants to end up. He needs to go further than that. So he seizes upon that moment. He noticed that there are people, and he knew as a, as a good faithful first century Jew that there are two major groups. There are other groups, but then the group that he kind of, uh, you know, divides and conquers, the one group is Pharisees, then the other is Sadducees. Okay, let's actually do that thought experiment. Or you look, look right here. This group, you're Pharisees, okay? And this group right here, you're Sadducees. Let me ask you the Sadducees. What don't you believe in? The resurrection, you don't believe in that. And well, what else? If you look at the text, it says that they did not, not only do they not believe in the resurrection, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in spirits. So in many ways, they, you, would be, you would be a material kind of religionist. You believe in it, but you're much more materialistic. You don't believe that the body can actually be raised from the dead because you're, you know, your religious horizon is limited by materiality. Dead people don't arise. So, and then... What do the Pharisees believe? What do you all believe? Do you believe in the resurrection or not? Yes, you do. Okay, right? Proclaim it loudly. That's right. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees do not. Notice their text here. Paul, knowing that some of them are Sadducees and others Pharisees. So he's like, okay, I'm going to pivot. I know what's happening here. I know the demographic makeup. I know my world. And he knows his end game. And so what does he say? Does Paul say true or false? Paul says in front of them, I'm, in, I'm standing in trial because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. True or false? False. What does he say then? He says, I stand in trial today because of the resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. Notice his strategy, his rhetorical strategy. He wants to get out of the Sanhedrin alive. He doesn't want to get in trouble. He wants to kind of get, because that's not his end game. He knows that he's going to martyr. He's one of the earliest Christian martyrs, meaning being, uh, you know, giving up his life literally for the sake of his Lord and God, right? 
But he knows that this is not where it's going to happen. This is not the end for him. So he comes up with the stress, so divides and conquers, right? He divides up this crowd quite literally into two halves. One half, Pharisees. The other half, Sadducees. And notice what happens. He says, I stand here because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When, look at verse 7. It says, when he said that, what happened? A dissension arose, a dispute broke. They began to argue. What were they arguing about? See, prior to this moment, I don't think they knew that he was a Pharisee. Prior to this moment, they couldn't like, who is this guy? And, and all the people here, all the people, Pharisees and Sadducees, didn't like this person because he's being convicted, he's being tried, and he's been so... Then he says, no, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. I believe in the resurrection. And then uh, uh, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and look at the parenthetical comment that Luke provides in verse 8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. Voila, right there. Paul knew it. Paul knew his audience. Paul knew the world where, where he was operating. And then verse 9, there was the what? Great uproar. And then I find this text absolutely hilarious, right? I find this actually like really funny because there's a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who are Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously and said, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? Notice that. It says, what if an angel or a spirit has spoken to him? Neither of which the Sadducees believe. So the Sadducees are like, no, we don't believe that. And the Pharisees are like, we believe in angel and the spirit. And then maybe the angel or spirit has spoken to this man or through this man. And maybe we should pay attention to what he's saying. Notice the result. Look at verse 10. The dispute became what? So violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Can you imagine, I mean, can you imagine literally people are pulling you one direction and another direction and you're like being pulled, you're, you know, your, your arms are about to be torn and you're like, oh, what's going on? And then the Roman commander. Now, this is what's going on. Because this was a religious gathering, the Roman government, Roman empire did not actually meddle with religious uh, kind of affairs of their colonized people, right? And remember that the political relationship between the Roman Empire and that of Israel was that the Israel, the people of the Jews, they were actually subject to Rome by political authority, but Rome basically left them alone. They were basically semi-autonomous group in terms of polity and also religion. So the religious gathering called the Sanhedrin, they weren't, so meaning this, the Roman soldiers who came to rescue Paul were not in the building, they were outside. And then, then when all this uproar happened, they could hear it. They're like, well, what's going on? Oh, wait a minute. That man that who's a Roman citizen is about to be torn to pieces. Let's go rescue him. You see what I mean? So first point is divide and conquer or remember your end game. Now, we have to ask this question. Why did Paul do all this? And this is the first point. Remember your end game. Paul knew that he wasn't just going to have his body torn asunder and that's how he's going to die. No. He knew that he was going to testify of the Lord's grace down the road, so it was not a mere survival uh, game that he was interested in. We know that because in Philippians, when he writes to the church in Philippi, he says, you know what? I would rather die than be alive because for me to live is to die and for me to live is Christ. That means if I were to die physically, I'm going to, be, I'm going to enter into this eternal glory of resurrection glory to be with my Lord, which he says is better by far. 
So he wasn't interested in mere survival. The, the reason for his dividing conquering tactic or strategy was not just to, so that he can live another day. Far from it. Then we have to ask the other question, another question, why was he trying to divide and conquer, which he evidently does? See, Paul's actual endgame was testifying to the grace of God who had revealed himself most definitively, definitively in the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom he encountered on the road to Damascus. Remember what Paul was doing as he was headed to Damascus? What was he going to do in Damascus? He was going to actually try to stamp out the spread of this heretical teaching taught by this Jesus of Nazareth. Remember that? And then his life becomes completely tra transformed. He comes to realize all the, the, the very one that the Moses had written about, the one that all the prophets and prophetesses were ardently longing for, and all of the zeal of the you know, first and second century Jews were really, you know, in the common era. What they were longing for was the coming of the mess messianic figure. Paul encounters him, ironically, on the road to Dam Damascus in order to put away people who were worshiping God in Jesus' name, and his life was no, no more the same. He came to realize that his end game is Christ. That means that, you know, whenever he is actually, whatever he did, he was doing it for the glory of his living God. Divide and conquer or remember your end game. Now let's then think about this further in our second point. So Paul goes into this divide and conquer mode because his end game was not going to be in Jerusalem. He knew that he would actually have to stand in trial in Rome and so he knows that's the end game, not just to stand trial but to really testify to the grace of God that had really turned his world upside down. And then we come to the second point of unite and be loved, or remember your true love, knowing, uh, look with me in verse 11. So Paul is in front of the Sanhedrin, and he goes through the commotion. His body was almost torn to, you know, split asunder, but then the Roman soldiers kind of came and rescued him. And then the Roman commander ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. So again, Paul has gone through a lot, and this day he's gone through a lot. His body was, I mean, they were pushing him, pulling him, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. There was lots of noise, and that's a lot of commotion, confusion, chaos. Now he's taken to the barracks, likely to be alone. And notice with me in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. Did you hear that? Now, how do we know this? Was Luke, the writer and the traveling companion of Paul, there in the barracks? No. It is Paul, as commonsensical as this must sound to you. It was Paul who told Luke, because they were traveling together. Paul told Luke, hey, this is what happened. What does he experience? He's alone, but he's not alone. He is literally and physically alone in the barracks cell, holding cell. And yet there, who shows up? It is the Lord who had told him on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This same Lord who has now given a new vision and new desires, new kind of goal of life, new end game, shows up to him and says, what? Take courage. But notice that language of standing near. 
The word that is used there in the, in the Greek is actually has the connotation of intimacy, proximity, and community. Think of Paul. He has been in trouble a lot because of Jesus. He is now in a holding cell by himself. And Paul experiences that proximity and intimacy and community with the risen Christ. Unite and be loved, or remember your true love. Notice what Jesus says, too, in that verse. Look at verse 11, please. It says, take courage, or in other versions, it'll say, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer, and that, that expression has shown up about seven times in the New Testament. All but one has to do with Jesus telling somebody, including this particular text. I want to introduce two, um, two occasions where Jesus uses this word and speaks this language. In Mark chapter 6, verse 50, so we read about Jesus walking on water, something that he hadn't done before, something that he wouldn't do since. His followers see Jesus, his disciples see Jesus, and they're shocked because they never saw anyone walking on water. And I think it was nighttime, and they're terrified. And Jesus says, be of good cheer and do not fear. It is I, don't be afraid. To the terrified disciples who thought that they saw a ghost, Jesus says, be of good cheer. It is me, it is I. Do not be afraid. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, you know what? I'm going to send another teacher, and he's going to remind you everything of who I am and what I've taught you, and he's going to be another comforter for you, comforting presence of God. And also he tells them of the, of the impending trouble his disciples would have to incur because of Jesus. He tells that in this world you will have trouble. He doesn't say, in this world, you might have trouble. He says, indicatively, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So every time his disciples were, were afraid, every time his, his followers were, you know, kind of gripped with, with uh, seized by, by this craven fear of survival, Jesus says, be of good cheer, because I am with you. I've overcome the world, it is I, I'm right there with you. And in this same word is used by Luke to describe the vision or dream or actual audible hearing experienced by Paul when he says, be of good cheer as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so will you in Rome. Be of good cheer as you have testified. So Paul experienced this. He is alone in the barrack cells. The next night after all the commotion has subsided, he experiences Jesus, who stood by him and says, you know what? Be of good cheer. You think you're alone. You're not alone. You think you're in trouble. You think you're uncertain of the future. You're not uncertain. I am the certain one whose existence transcends cultures and histories and stories and all of the boundaries that you think are for real. I transcend all of it. So I'm here to tell you that you will get to Rome I'm here to tell you that you will survive this one. I'm here to tell you that you are okay because I am right here with you. Jesus, standing by Paul, reminds him that even in the midst of the hard work of testifying to the resurrection glory of Christ, he's not alone. Paul came to experience that it was entirely apropos to speak 
of the individual relationship with, with and experience of God as one of love. Let me say this again. So in the plethora of religions that Paul and his followers and many early followers of Jesus were part of in that civilization, in that cultures, very seldom would you speak of the relationship between God and humans as predicated on love. It was much more on the, the it was predicated much more on the appeasing, the anger, appeasing the potential wrath, averting the, 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 the divine chastisement. It was more often that. It was much more contractual and transactional. But Paul, after his experience, really began to kind of understand that, you know what, in fact, the entirety of the, 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 the religion of Israel was actually predicated on the chesed, which means that divine grace, the unmerited favor of God. That means the people of Israel ought to, and, and they were experienced, should have been experiencing the love of God. And, and you see that right the way through the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, that it is God's grace that takes precedent, takes priority. And so Paul really began, and the early Christian community, more than any other religious communities, began to really develop this language of the love of God. That you actually experience the love of God, you actually, you know, because unite with the living God in Jesus Christ and experience that beloved nature of who you are. Let me say this again. You know, we go through our life really seeking all kinds of ways to be accepted. We jump through so many different hoops so that we can be more presentable and presented as righteous or you come in, you can belong to us. But the most fundamental belonging before we do anything at all is that you belong to God. The fundamental belonging of your life is that you are already known, you are already loved. Before you, you, you have to be more presentable to be lovable. No, 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 stop doing all of that. See, the fundamental, the, the only requirement that you have is you come as you are. Say, you know what? I cannot come in any other guise, so I'm just going to come to you the way I am. Divide and conquer, unite and be loved. See, you're not, you're not doing, Paul's not doing anything in order to be more acceptable to God. So Jesus is reminding his beloved disciple Paul that you're not alone. Cheer up because I have overcome the world. As you are working in different places, whether at home or, you know, in, in a company or warehouse or retired or whatever it is, or in school, I want to remind you that you're not alone. I want to remind you that you are loved because of the nature of the lover called God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who has given us himself in such a manner that Christ has shed his own blood, has his body broken, mutilated, and, and so that we come to experience that in a palpable way, in a poignant way, in a fraction, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a fraction of a fashion by coming to the Lord's table. So friends, we have encountered this interesting text, Paul before the Sanhedrin. We end with Paul before Jesus, or Jesus before Paul. Jesus reminds Paul that you're not alone. Jesus reminds Paul that I know what you're going to do. Jesus reminds Paul that I'm going to be with you. So friends, wherever you are, whatever it is that you are doing, whether you live in Nashville or not, whether you're working or not, none of it matters. Jesus is telling you and me, I know you. I know your past. I know your present. I know your future. But my love for you is omniscient love. It is not partial love. It is not provisional love. I know everything about you, yet I've covenanted to love you. So let us come to that Lord of grace and glory, 
because he will invite us, he will embrace us, he will also send us out from here as transformed people. Recognizing our desperate need for grace means that we also see the world in need of the very thing that we have needed, and God alone will fill us. So let's pray. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. That Paul knew that his end game was to testify to the, to the grace of God that has transformed his life. So he divided and conquered in a way that actually caused a bit of a stir, but also he knew that because that was going to be his survival game. But the ultimate survival was not going to be found in his rhetorical ploy, but in the grace of God that has really transformed him. So we come to you, dear Lord, as we come to your table, as we partake of your body broken and blood shed. May you continue the work of transformation of this community as uh, Christ's prayers music row continues to testify to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. May we be reminded of the fact that we ought to be of good cheer because I am with you, that you will continue to testify about me in Nashville and to the ends of the earth. Thank you for that reminder. In your name we pray these things. Amen.